Hello, everyone. Here at the Decision Lab, it is our mission to democratize access to behavioral science insights through research, analysis, and application. Since launching in 2014, we've become one of the leaders in this space and have worked with organizations such as the World Bank, the Skoll Foundation, and some of the largest financial institutions in Canada and the United States. My name is Jacob Rusenek. I'm a senior consultant at the Decision Lab, and I will be your host today. Prior to working at the Decision Lab, I've been part of a team that spearheaded early efforts to establish a behavioral science unit at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. It is during this period when I had the opportunity to work with today's guest, Professor Julian Jameson. As our listeners know, applied behavioral science has been growing intensely in the last 10 to 15 years. What was once a field at the fringe of social science and public policy has inspired the startup of hundreds of nudge units around the world. Much of that growth, especially in the development sector, started with the behavioral economics team at the World Bank, a small team of economists and social scientists that has been growing steadily for the past three years, creating impact in dozens of developing countries. Today, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing Dr. Julian Jameson, who has until recently worked as senior behavioral scientist at the World Bank. We want to speak with Julian about the current state of behavioral science and where he believes it will take us in the coming years. Julian is a professor of economics at the University of Exeter. He was previously a senior behavioral economist for the Global Insights Initiative at the World Bank, which is now known as MBET, the Mind, Behavior and Development Unit. Julian also served as the section chief of the decision-making and behavioral studies group in the Office of Research at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau within the United States government. He holds a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science in Mathematics from the California Institutes of Technology and a PhD in Economics from the MIT. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julian. It's really great to have you. So we would like to speak with you about your take on the field of behavioral science and what trends you foresee in the coming future. But before getting into that, I think many of our listeners would be curious to first learn how you got into behavioral science as a field, what it is that you have done at the World Bank before, and what are some of the more exciting projects you currently work on? Can you walk our listeners through some of them? Sure. And thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I guess, I mean, I started in behavioral science when I was going to say it wasn't really a field. That's not true because it's been a field for a long time, for decades now. But when it wasn't as well developed and certainly for an economist like myself, it didn't really exist as a as something that one did. My aunt is a psychologist, so I had some exposure to that early on. And as an undergraduate, I did some lab experiments on on market behavior, but I think one can't help seeing individuals behave and and make choices and make decisions, real humans in the real world, without getting interested in something like behavioral science, because they do all kinds of interesting and and a little bit quirky things that you want to find out more about. So, So my interest was sparked at that point. And then did some game theory. So thinking a lot about individual behavior from, from different perspectives over time. So that was my PhD in game theory and then worked various places after that, but, but always with this focus on what are people doing and, and sometimes the policy implications. At the World Bank, as you said, so I was there, I was in, in the behavioral science unit, which was originally GINI, the Global Insights Initiative, and then, and then now Embed, the Mind, Behavior, and Development Unit. And we were almost like internal, and I'm still, I'm still working with them a bit as, a, as an outside consultant and uh, working on projects there. I was going to say almost like an internal consulting team where we would work with operational units at the bank on projects, often with governments, although, although not always, and bring a, bring a behavioral science 
perspective, try to bring some behavioral insights to the table at whatever level they needed and, and try to learn from it ourselves. So try to have a broader takeaway where we could turn around and make it a bit of a public good for the rest of the bank and, and more broadly. Fantastic. Oh, and you asked about a current project. So I'll just mention one, obviously happy to talk about more. This is a bank project we're doing in Cameroon on the take-up of LARCs, long-acting reversible contraceptives among young women. So I like it because it has very much a behavioral element. We're thinking about stigma and biases on both the provider side and the client side, but also it has a it has a more almost neoclassical element where we're thinking about prices and, and what's the effect of prices on take of this somewhat unusual good. It's not a standard retail good, obviously, but we still think prices matter. Even there, there's a behavioral element because there's this idea that a zero price might be very different from something else. Marketers have thought about this for a while, and there's some recent work on bed nets and subsidies and the development literature. So we want to test that again in the context of this unusual but important good. So yeah, that's a fun one that brings a lot of different aspects together. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Julian. And so now teach economics at the University of, and you have to help me out here again, Exeter? Exeter, yes. I'm curious, what motivated you to take on this role and, and how does it differ from your previous role at the World Bank? And then maybe also what aspects of economics do you actually teach? I had started my my career, my professional career as an academic and, and then left and worked in the U.S. government at the World Bank and in doing research, but, but in the sort of policy organization settings. And I really enjoy that. I'm really glad I did that as part of my career. And I, I wish in some ways more, more academics would consider something like that. It's, it's extremely fulfilling and, and you learn a lot. But I kind of always had the sense that most likely I would return to academia. I feel like that is a natural home for me. I have just a little bit more freedom on, on what to work on. Not that anybody was restricting me or telling me what to do, but, but you're trying to match the goals of the organization wherever you are, mostly just internally. You, you, know, you want to be helpful. You want to help out. You want to, you want to make it work. And that's, and that's right. That's how it should be. And that's what I was doing. But to have a little bit of freedom to, to do things that are either slightly more controversial or a little bit more blue sky or have a payoff that's 10 years away instead of, you know, 18 months away, uh, and a little bit more philosophical in my case was my goal. We can get into that a bit later if, if, if you want on, on a future project. It's felt good in that way. And, and partly I'm, I'm taking advantage of a little bit best of both worlds, because as I said, I am still working with the bank and I'm still really excited about those projects and, and, and like the team there. So I'm getting to continue that. We'll see how that goes long term. I'm teaching development economics for undergraduates, third year, final year undergraduates here, uh, and bringing in, of course, some some behavioral science elements, but a, a, a broader perspective on on the development literature. I'd love to ask you a, a brief follow up question. Uh, actually, I'm I'm just curious in terms of your your student uh, group, your student body. How um how high is the interest in in the behavioral science aspects of development economics? So I think it's quite high. We'll see. I've, I've just started teaching last week, so so I can't say specifically about this group. But but from my experience, but talking to some other students here last term and and students at other universities, behavioral sciences. I mean, as you know, this is why why we're doing this and. And why it's all set up, it's become extremely popular and uh, not, you know, not with everyone. There's certainly pushback as well. And I'm sympathetic to a little bit of that, although obviously I'm a proponent of the field. I think people are people are excited about it. I think I think it's a fun area to get into. And it's one that you can take a lot of different ways. So in some sense, whatever your underlying interests are in terms of topic areas, whether it's development economics or something a bit more standard, health economics or even trade, something outside economics, you can almost always bring a behavioral slant to it. And that 
that complements rather than substitutes what's already going on. And I think for the most part, people see that. Let's segue to our next question. So as you said, interest in applied behavioral science um, seems to be continuously growing across different countries and sectors. So, but with that, views about what nudging irrationality, behavioral economics, or behavioral science are have also shifted. Um, so Julian, if I was going to ask you to the average person, what do you think nudging means in 2019? And also, how do you think this is likely to change in the coming years? I guess I would I would start by saying, and I, I, I know you realize this, that, that nudging and behavioral science are, to me, nudging is a subset of behavioral science, but not the whole thing. But anyway, they're, they're intersecting and overlapping, but, but not identical. I think, I think to answer your question, what does nudging mean to the average person? I would say it's something that's a small change, but that's done with a, with a conscious, explicit purpose to to alter outcomes, to predictably, on average, an expectation, obviously not for everybody, alter outcomes. And so I distinguish that a little bit because I think sometimes the people, especially the people doing nudges and pushing for nudges, want to claim that there's there's almost zero cost to it because sometimes there's a, there's a zero financial cost or you know that's it's choice architecture there's something that's that's always there and they're right i'm sympathetic to that kind of view but i think almost always by definition there is some at least psychological cost to doing something else because that's why it works so in that sense i think we should acknowledge what even if we don't agree in the end, but acknowledge the starting point of some of the criticisms that there is a cost, uh, however small it is. So I'd say it's something where where there's this, we're altering things to make it a little bit harder to, you know, to change people's behavior, to change the outcomes, but it's small. And so to me, the important part is that it's small rather than that it leaves all options open or, or something like that. Although I'm, I get the idea of what people are trying to say. Okay. And so, you know, just as a follow-up, uh, the second part of the question is, so how do you think this aspect that you just described is, is, is likely to change or not to change in the coming years? We're trying to get a little bit at, at the trends in the field from your perspective. Good question. A bit, a bit hard to predict. I, I actually think in that sense that I think that the average person, I liked your question about what does the average person think? I think in some ways they're a little bit ahead of the field of practitioners because I think coming around to the sense of any small change, whether it's whether it's setting the default option or whether it's a small cost or whether it's something else, that that's how to think of it. What's important is this just shifting things slightly and potentially having a, a, a big change in outcomes is to me the, the most, it's not right in the sense of sort of morally right, but it's right in the sense of that's the consistent view that I think is going to be most productive in, in thinking about the field. So in that sense, I, I, I think that's there's already a little bit of a step in that direction as to where it goes even even further in the future. I guess one thing I'd like to see is that is that it gets applied a little bit of a distinction between behavioral issues, I don't want to say problems, but choices that are driven due to behavioral insights or behavioral factors versus interventions that are behaviorally guided or behaviorally motivated. And I think you can have either one without the other or both of them. So you could have you can have a behavioral obstacle and an intervention or policy that's not behavioral at all, that's that's regulation or price-based or something else. And conversely, you can have issues that you want to deal with, something where you're trying to guide people in a particular direction that are not particularly behavioral, but then have a policy or intervention that's behaviorally informed, or you can have both. But I think distinguishing those two where they're often confounded now will be another thing that I that I hope to see in more of in the future. So in a way, it's not necessarily uh, going to have to be an either or, if I hear it correctly, but an end, and then kind of compare. And in particular, I think the second one gets a little bit less attention. So the one where it's not necessarily a behavioral 
obstacle. It might be something that's just a very traditional issue that we've dealt with for a long time, but where the intervention is is behaviorally informed. And I think I think we can people are doing that as well. Uh, but I think we can push a little bit hard on that front, and it'll help to explicitly view it that way to start coming up with ideas and and going a little bit further. Okay, so now I'd like to shift gears to talk about the application of behavioral science, uh, especially in policymaking. So obviously, the World Bank Group has a strong reputation because it applies rigorous and um, academic approach to policymaking, which can be something that can be very beneficial for client countries and governments that request uh, World Bank services. But it sometimes also comes with challenges. So at times we have heard that behavioral science is embraced by project leaders at the bank and also in government counterparts because it provides fresh, new, and sometimes a bit quicker perspectives than some of the classic economic models have done in the past. But we also hear that units don't necessarily have the luxury of time and budgets to conduct always complex randomized control trials, yet they are still interested enough to apply um, behavioral science to their projects in a sound manner. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for an organization looking to apply behavioral science in an empirical manner, and how can they be best tackled? I'll start by saying that although I've done a lot of a lot of RCTs, a lot of randomized trials, and I think it's great when you can do them, you learn a lot from it, but I would be the last person to say you always need to do that or it's always worth it. Sometimes you either don't have the time or sometimes you don't need it. Sometimes you can you can make a good guess otherwise. I think my overall response would be as, as and this is sort of a general theme maybe for the conversation, that I don't think behavioral science is that different from a lot of other tools in the toolkit. It's it's maybe a bit new. But it's not of a different type than the others. And so the way that applies here is that I think it can be done quickly, and that's fine sometimes. And it can be done more extensively if if you don't have as good a sense of the answer, if you have the time to do that, if you're focused more on the learning side, maybe than that we have to we have to get a policy in place side. So I don't think it's inherently quicker, although I know I, I, you're quite right to say that some people kind of want to see that about it. And it can be. Some of the nudges can be, can be small. It can be easier to undertake. But then, you know, price changes can sometimes be be small as well, some of the traditional ones. So it can be quick, but I wouldn't push that. To me, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to sort of rest my, I had the reputation on pushing behavioral science because it's because it's faster or quicker. I don't actually think that's the main advantage. I think the main advantage is, is sometimes it tells us something that we didn't know before and it's and it's the right way to go about it. So I'm sympathetic to that view that sometimes they don't always have time, but I don't think that's an argument either against or or in favor of, of behavioral science. I think it's just that it's it's a different way of looking at things. And so to that end, what's what's the biggest impediment is is sometimes that people don't have expertise and sometimes that it, it introduces a bit of uncertainty and and to be quite frank, if you have a way of doing things, even if you know it's not always right, you know, it gives you an answer, you're used to it, you don't have to go to your boss and say, well, on the one hand, it's this, on the other hand, it's that, we don't quite know, it sort of says like, here's the answer, here's the prediction, here's what our model tells us to do, so let's go and do it. If you bring in something that's just a different way of looking at things, something that's a little bit more context dependent, that says a little bit more, you know, people are, are fickle sometimes, then, you know, I think just institutionally, that's sometimes a harder sell, even though it shouldn't be. If that's how the world is, that's how the world is. It's complex, it's complicated, we're going to get it wrong sometimes, and, and that's okay. That's how we learn. That's how we improve for next time. But it can be a harder sell. So just having a different approach is is not always the easiest. But I hope people take take the chance a bit more. I hope it's fair to say that you belong to a group of, of you know, as I would call groundbreaking researchers that have embraced the, the topic or have done research in in applied behavioral science. Can you share with our listeners how you typically choose teams you are interested in researching about and how you link these to behavioral science if you do that um, and what tools you use for your research? I think a lot of people are interested in what 
what do you do to distinguish good research from bad research, especially in behavioral science? And then what, for the lack of a better word, tricks do you use to translate sometimes very complex academic knowledge that's not always easy to understand for the average person to applied work without losing any of its depth and rigor? To be honest, some of it is, is uh, as always, it's opportunities that come up. It's people you want to work with and, and find interesting and, and have conversations with and, and spend time with. I've always found lots of different things that, that interest me. And I, I suspect that's true for a lot of the listeners here and a lot of other people, although I also have met people, surprisingly to me, who who you know have trouble coming up with research topics or want to know what to work on next, and and to me it's it's usually the opposite problem. And so to some extent, because there are, there are a lot of interesting things out there, you know, I, I I do try to pick a little bit where where do I think I might have some impact. And I appreciate you saying I don't know how true it is, but maybe somewhat true that you know starting starting early on, I had had the the good fortune to be thinking about these kinds of things quite a while ago, and 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 hopefully does have some influence, and and then working at the World Bank where you're in close contact with governments and you feel like you're you're making a difference. There's lots of different ways to do that, but because there are so many interesting questions to me, finding ones where where I think it really is going to matter and it's going to make a difference to to people and especially to to maybe some of the more vulnerable people who who need a bit of help or, or can't always speak for themselves. I think that's a good place to start if you have the opportunity to do it. In terms of tools, I have often used field experiments and, and randomized trials. Uh, I've used surveys a lot and, and preference elicitation measures on surveys. I think about methodology. I like to deal into the nitty gritty of measurement issues, which, which isn't always the most sexy area. And, and people want to maybe think about the substance and, and I'm, I understand why that's the case. But I think the, the measurement area matters. And, the, and the, you know, obviously the methods matter both in terms of being rigorous, as, as you said, and I can say a couple words about good and bad research. But I think also just sort of exactly how you measure outcomes, for instance, can make a big difference to, to whether you see an effect or not, to see what kind of effect you see. And sometimes people People wish that weren't the case, I suspect, and so they don't spend a lot of time always thinking about the measurement because it, it can take time to get it right or to acknowledge, as I said, the uncertainty. Sometimes just acknowledge if you measure it this way, this is what we get, and you measure it a different way, something else happens, and we're not really sure which one is right or maybe which one is right depends on on exactly which question you're asking, and so that's, that's a little bit harder to come across as your conclusion, but, but I think that's often the case. Yeah, I think that's how we learn. I think that's how, in the end, how we do the most good. So... Good research and bad research, I think being explicit about assumptions, being explicit about what your goals are and what your hypotheses are. So for instance, stepping back a little bit, talking about behavioral science more broadly, people have been doing this with effectively behavioral science for a long time you know, in, in marketing and in lots of other areas. And that's, to be honest, one of the criticisms we get, I think, a little bit coming in now and working on the field is people say, well, you know, we've been doing that for decades. We know this stuff. And that's true, but I think it hasn't always been as well spelled out. And, and uh, I'm sure some people will, will fight back probably accurately and point me to examples where it has, but but they haven't been maybe as careful. It's been a bit more intuitive and treating a bit more as a science, bringing the science into behavioral science, I think is really important. That's how you, you make testable predictions. You get things wrong. You learn, you try it a different way. You converge as a field on figuring out what are the patterns here and what do we really believe in versus the things that don't hold up. And to make that level of progress, to be able to go confidently to a policymaker and say, we really think this is going to work in this situation for you right now, you need to have that, that empirical background and, and that sense of here's the structure, here's the framework, here's what we tried and what we haven't in the past. So I think that's super important for, for good research that's going to add even if just one little chink, that's how we build up the whole edifice uh, overall. Let's see, you asked about 
translation to applied work from the research. If the, this comes back around a little bit, if the research is done, sort of, I won't say right, but, but uh, a useful way from the beginning is to really be thinking about the context, often even the policy question, but, but whether or not you go that far, embedding it very carefully in the context, because especially for behavioral research, as, as we all know, that's a lot of what's important that, that changes things quite a bit. So if you've started that way with a particular context, then it's much easier to go back afterwards, both to be able to make sort of policy statements and, and applied con conclusions, but also to have the credence to make those. Maybe you've got the relationship, you've been talking to people from the beginning. So this is, this is a little bit more than just talk to everybody at the beginning and, and figure out what questions are important to them, although there's an element of that. It's more that to do the good research, even if you're doing it purely for research purposes, you're going to start with a particular context, and then that's going to allow you at the end to be able to make conclusions that are inherently relevant to the context. I want to ask you uh, two more questions that I think uh, our, you know, our, our listeners are quite curious about. Um, the first one is more about how to have a career in the field of behavioral science. So since the field is becoming an increasingly appealing career choice for many, you know, especially those people who want to sit at the intersection between various fields as well as between theory and application. However, for that very reason, it is a tough field to prepare well for. So many of our readers and listeners have asked us how they can best prepare for the field. So with this in mind, what skills do you think an applied behavioral scientists will most need in the next 10 years and how can they best prepare for that and also how would you distinguish between a behavior scientist who wants to be a researcher versus someone who wants to do uh, applied work it's an unusual field that probably everybody feels that way about their own area but probably as i said it wasn't so much of a field it wasn't as well defined a field at least from the role that i was in the perspective i was in you know maybe 20 years ago and sometimes i wonder if in the future it might also not be a field, but in a very different way. Before, I think people weren't doing it. In the future, I kind of hope everybody's doing it to some extent, but it may not exist as a separate field that way. It may be a part of a lot of other things where it does complement them in a lot of ways. And so, but that also makes it tricky now to think about, you know, where, where do you place yourself? Because it could look quite different. I think in, in, in five or 10 years, it's pretty safe to say there will still be something called behavioral science. In 20 or 30 or 40 years, I'm, I'm actually not sure. But again, not because I think it's going to disappear, but because it may percolate out. And I think that would be a success. I think that would mean we've done our job. But to be a little bit more concrete for people who are, are thinking about what to get into, I think there's a little bit of knowing the basics, you know, knowing the, the core principles and, and the readings and, and some of the books and papers that, that we're familiar with. There are some courses now on this and some online courses and others, and that's certainly a good place to start. But then having at least one other one other thing that, that you do really well that you bring to the table, whether that's a particular knowledge area in finance or health or development or geographic specialty, or whether it's a methodological specialty where you're really good at machine learning and big data, or you're good at sociology and qualitative work in addition to quantitative work, having this sort of, I think of it almost spatially is you have this core element, but then rather than thinking of just adding things to that, maybe go pick something that's a little bit more in left field and learn that really well, or maybe that's already your background and, and you can bring that and that that helps you to stand out a little bit. And that helps you because you are going to be working as part of the team because that's that's how things go nowadays. You don't have to be doing everything. You're not going to be expected to that. That doesn't make sense, but bring something that that maybe few other people have and, and that's going to be a useful skill. So so think about it in that sort of dual dual way is what I would suggest. You, you asked about research versus versus more sort of the operational side. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think 
that's a maybe a bit more just what what you like doing and and for me as a as a researcher even when i was working in in the policy organizations and and enjoying that i felt like that's what motivated me was to to learn things and and of course i want them to be helpful things i want them to be things that people can go and use and sometimes i'm the one trying to go and use them but what really motivated me was was learning something even if to be honest i didn't see it used right away and other people i think it's very much the reverse so they really want to they want to see it playing out they want to see it making a difference changing how something is done in the real world and and obviously those are both key elements important to have both but it, it's it's a bit hard it's a bit harder for me to imagine changing yourself from those. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people can. Some people do both. So I would say sort of be honest with yourself of, of which one motivates you and then let that let that guide you because, because there's lots of openings in both of them. There's no reason to force yourself to fit into one of the others. I don't think either one is, is going to be more successful than another way to go. Thank you, Julian. I especially liked what you said about uh, distinguishing oneself by having kind of a specialty within within the specialty of, let's say, behavioral science and how that can be a very value-adding element uh, that one can bring to the table to, to any project or any team. So as we're coming towards the end of this chat, we would like to just ask you what short to long-term future you envision for yourself with regards to behavioral science, if there's even that component that you, will, um, you want to explore further uh, down the line in your career, and what types of projects you're most excited about in the coming years. It's good timing. I actually just got off a phone call with a potential future collaborator because I, I am thinking about that. And that was, uh, as I mentioned briefly, one of the reasons I wanted to return to an academic position. And it's very much related to, to behavioral science and behavioral policy broadly construed, whether that's governments or organizations or, or you know, family-oriented people. I have a young son and think about his future as well or, or uh, interactions among friends and peer networks. So I I want to be getting into a little bit more normative or welfare analysis. So thinking about what constitutes a mistake if we depart from the economist view of revealed preference and behavioral science certainly is extremely suggestive, convincing to me that people do make mistakes. That is to say, they make choices that are not in line with with their own long-term best interest to maximizing their own utility function. So the revealed preference doesn't always work in that sense. So what do we replace it with? And what kind of model taking a mix evolutionary psychology, behavioral science, of course, economic theory, a bit of philosophy thrown in, survey data on, on regret and on experiences. How can we sort of pull all these things into together to think of a model of mistakes, a model of conflicting preferences where I conflict with my future self. Which preferences do we use for, for welfare analysis, for policy analysis? Is there some sense of, of legitimate preferences? And there's not going to be a right answer to that. I'm not going to be able to prove this is or isn't a mistake that somebody made, or these preferences are the right ones, and those are, or those are not legitimate ones. But I think we have tools at our disposal and and a lot of the work in, in behavioral science you know leads to this and suggests to this that then can can feed into the models can say well this is the set of reasonable outcomes and these other ones are really not too reasonable you have to be making some very extreme assumptions to to get there which are not plausible here's the set of reasonable things for policymakers to go and take you know ideally a democratically elected government or or an organization that's making a choice in a, in a transparent way from within this set or here's something where in this setting, given this background, we might expect people to make these kinds of choices, or we might expect people to make, make what we think of as a mistakes, and we might guide them a little bit or have more reason to nudge. So taking the sort of libertarian paternalism side of things 
a little bit more seriously, being transparent about it and saying, well, sometimes sometimes we are paternalistic uh, because sometimes we don't have a choice or sometimes we do have a choice and we think it's the right thing to do, but let's be transparent. Let's do it the best way we can and, and see where we get. So yeah, so that's where I'm, I'm headed. It's kind of a broad agenda. I know I have to start somewhere a little more specific and small scale, but but I'm excited about it. Thank you so much for all your insights today, Julian. We really like to thank you for your time and, and wish you all the best for 2019 and beyond. Thanks very much. Same to you and all the listeners. It's been a pleasure to chat. This was the third of a series of podcasts conducted by the Decision Lab with behavioral science experts working across various industries. We hope it provided some fresh and valuable insights to you about the current state of the field and upcoming trends. If you would like to receive our newsletter or simply want to get in touch with us or potentially have interest in being interviewed yourself for podcasts in this series, please visit us at www.thedecisionlab.com.